It's good to see everybody. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans this morning, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and uh, it's good to have uh, TJ and Aspen and Genevieve visiting with us again today. They've been here before. Glad to have them. Have, good to have Mr. and Mrs. Chase with us this morning, and uh, they're, they're visiting with us again. And uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to, somebody asked me this week how, how, I, how I thought I was doing with names, and I said, I'm probably pretty, about half the people I know, I think. And I'm looking around for people I don't know, and I think I, think I've, I, think I got the right name with uh, the right faces, I think, finally. I'm looking forward to the new church directory, incidentally, that we'll have pictures <laughs> of everybody's names. And if you haven't done that already, I hope, I hope you will. And uh, see Natalie Hesselink, and then Bob and Lisa are taking care of the updating all that stuff. Okay, you guys ready for a good time? <laughs> let's, let's, have, let's, have, let's have a good sermon for a change, all right? All in favor, say Amen. Amen. All right, that's good. Let's talk about the book of Romans this morning. The book of Romans is, uh, is considered to be the, the big book of the New Testament. The big book of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes the book of Romans in 55, 8, 55 to 58 AD, somewhere in there. He writes it in the last decade of his life. Ten years before he dies, he writes this letter. He writes it from the city of Corinth. When Paul writes this letter, Nero is the emperor. Nero is the emperor. Remember Nero? Uh, I had this picture of him here on the right. That's Nero. Uh, most of the pictures of Nero are just a bust of a, of a statue, of a carving made of him. A scientist decided to take one of those images, and with the computers, they, they re, they re, they, re uh, <laughs> they made this picture of Nero, what he actually looked like in the flesh. Notice he was redheaded. And we all know that Nero was crazy, right? So red-headed people are crazy. <laughs> and so Nero is the emperor, and ultimately Paul is going to be killed in the city of Rome in 65 AD. If you ever get a chance to read the book Revolutionary Bible Study by Gene Edwards, Gene Edwards uh, says that Paul and Nero had a private conversation in Nero's garden just days before Nero had Paul put to death. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I've done a little, little more reading about it, and they say that it actually, it actually did probably take place that Paul met Nero. You may say, how, how could Paul meet the emperor of the Roman Empire? That's because Paul was a Roman citizen. Every Roman citizen had the right to request that their trial be heard personally by Nero himself. That was a, a request they could make. Any person who was a free Roman citizen could make that request. Now, the only problem with that, the way they controlled that, was if you appealed to Caesar, you had to voluntarily go under house arrest for two years, two years to wait. So that kept people from just saying over any old thing, I want Nero to hear my case. So Paul, he appeals to to Caesar, he appeals to Nero, and he eventually dies there in Rome. But in 55 AD, Paul is not under arrest. In my opinion, when you read the book of Romans, the apostle Paul addresses a few objections that are taking place to Christianity. Christianity is really catching on. It's really causing a stir. And some accusations are being made about Christianity. And some of those are present today. Not all of them, but some of them are. And Paul deals with some of these in this letter to the Romans. I'm going to give you four of them, but that's not the message. The four objections Paul answers. So here's the first one. The Jews are saying that the gospel is an innovation 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is something new, something that cannot be trusted because it is new. And that's an objection from the Jews. The second one is, Gentiles are beginning to say, Gentile Christians are beginning to say that there is no place in the Christian church for the Jews. And the reason they're saying that there is no place in the Christian church for the Jews, it's Paul's fault. It's Paul's fault why they're saying this. Because Paul has been going around, he has been refuting Judaism. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul would go to the synagogue and he would listen to what they were saying. And then after Paul would sit there for a few days or a few Sabbath days, he would finally say what? He would say, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the risen Son of God. He would go on the offense and say, the scriptures are all teaching about this man, Jesus. And the Jews, they didn't like that. Some of them accepted it. Some of them did not. And then after Paul preaches Jesus unto them, other false teachers would follow Paul, and they would come around. These are Jewish teachers. The Bible calls them Judaizers. They would come behind Paul, and they would say, yeah, well, Paul is half right. It's Jesus plus keeping the Old Testament law. And so, so Paul spends a lot of his time refuting Judaism and also refuting this hybrid Christianity that was a blend of Judaism and Christianity. And Paul's refutation His defense of Christianity is so good, it's so thorough, that people begin to say, Jews can't be Christians. They just discount them. People would overcorrect. Have you ever been guilty of (laughs) overcorrecting? I've been been a parent for what feels like forever. (laughs) And and sometimes with your kids, we tend to overcorrect. We tend to overcorrect. And you see it all through the scriptures, overcorrections. The third thing Paul talks about here is Paul lays out in the book of Romans what salvation is and how it works, the doctrine of salvation. And he does it in chapter 1 by talking about two things. He says there's a universal problem, and that's sin. And there's a universal remedy, and that's Jesus. He says everybody's a sinner, everybody needs a Savior. And Paul lays that out in this epistle to the Romans. And the fourth thing that Paul does towards the end of the letter is he deals with the practical implications of the gospel in its relation to the church and to individuals. So those, those are the four things I think Paul deals with in the book of Romans. And uh, we'll just go ahead and do the whole book today. Is that okay? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Theologians and Christians have all, all loved the book of Romans. Valerie and I, we read the Bible. We don't read the Bible together, but we follow the same Bible reading schedule, which is kind of a nice thing when you're you're married to a Christian person. So we're reading the same portions of Scripture every year. And we use the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading program, which takes us through the New Testament twice in a year and the Old Testament once in a year and Psalms twice. And we've been doing that for a long time. Every time it gets to Romans, Valerie, she says, I can't wait. Romans is coming. (laughs) We're about to get to Romans. She says, I love Romans. And my friends, I love Romans too. And Christian theologians and teachers down through the centuries have all said they love Romans. But I want to tell you why I love Romans. It was when I went to college in 1996. I went into a class called Personal Evangelism, or How to Witness to People Personally. And in that class, they taught me a thing called the Romans Road. I'd never heard it before. My dad really wasn't a big proponent of it, but I learned the Romans Road. And those five or six verses of Scripture from Romans that I learned, I have used to talk to hundreds of people about the gospel, telling them how they could be reconciled to God by taking them down the Romans Road. 
Now, that's not my sermon this morning, but I want to tell you the Romans Road. If you want to write it down in the flyleaf of your Bible or on the back of your hand or, or on something, that way you'll have it. But here's how the Romans Road works. It begins with this, with this assertion. All people are sinners. All people are sinners. And that's Romans 3.10. I'm going to quote from the King James Version because that's how I memorized it. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. Romans 3.23 I forgot what Romans 3.23 says. There you go. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody has fallen short of God's glory. The, the mark of being perfect, everybody's fallen short. There's nobody good enough to go to heaven on their own merits. You may externally be pretty good, but even internally we sin. That's where we sin the most is on the inside. All are sinners. And then they taught me to say, sin demands a price. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Because you're a sinner, you're going to die. You guys know what a wage is? How many of you got a wage? You get a wage. This morning, I asked Valerie, I said, did I get paid this week? <laughs> and she said, yes, you did. And I said, I don't even think about it. She said, I do. <laughs> it tells you who handles the money at our house. I never think about it. She does all the, all the, money, all the money work at our house, which is... Uh, I was going to crack a joke about that, but I decided not to. <laughs> I was going to whine and complain. <laughs> so a wage is something you get because you deserve it. The wages of sin is death. Because you sin, you're going to die. All death is a result of sin. Nobody, get, nobody dodges it. Everybody's going to perish. The wages of sin is death. The third part of the Romans road is Jesus paid the price for you. Romans 6.23b. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you contrast the difference between a wage and a gift. A wage is something you deserve. A gift is something you don't deserve. A gift is something you don't deserve. Wage, you deserve death. You do not deserve salvation. But Jesus Christ has given us a gift. And all gifts have to be paid for, don't they? We're coming up upon the great Christmas season, right? Where we're going to be giving lots of gifts to people who we care about and who we love. And in that giving of, season of giving, your, the level of your giving is going to be determined by the amount of money in your bank account, right? Gifts have to be paid for. And Jesus Christ paid for the gift of salvation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ died and paid the price for sin. So that you could go in. And then the fourth part of the Romans road is probably my favorite. Romans 10, 9 through 13. I'll just do verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call upon Jesus and he will save you. If you're a sinner, call upon him. If you're a sinner, if you've sinned against him, call upon him. He, Jesus has come to save you. Call upon him. I love Romans because... That's what they taught me at college. They didn't teach me the whole book of Romans. I wish they had. They didn't teach me a systematic study of Romans. I wish they had. But they did teach me the Romans road. And I've walked down that path with hundreds of people, old people, young people, blind people, sighted people. I've walked, I've tapped on people's doors and, and showed them the path to heaven. And that's, why I love the, that's why I love the book of Romans. is because it's where I learned how to tell people the greatest story the greatest news they could ever hear about Jesus Christ and his saving power. Martin Luther 
who was a Catholic monk in the 15th century, he loved the book of Romans too. Because the book of Romans was what he was reading when he realized that a person is justified by faith alone without doing works for salvation. This was very important to Martin Luther because he was a Catholic monk. He was a Catholic priest. He taught the Catholic doctrines. And he was so worried, he was so afraid of meeting God and having to give an account for his sins. He thought about meeting God in the, in the day of judgment. And he said, how can I atone for my sins? How can I have peace with God? And he could not find peace. He fasted. He starved. Fasting and starving yourself are the same thing, aren't they? He beat himself. He did all these, all these special works to try to find peace with God. But one day, he was reading the book of Romans in Greek. And, some, and this is kind of a, this is a little bit debated. Some people say he was reading it while he was sitting upon the commode. Bathroom reading. And he read the book of Romans, chapter 4, and sees that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And he sees Paul's reasoning that through faith in Jesus, one can be justified before God. And Martin Luther, the, the light goes off in his brain and the whole world is changed because he realizes that salvation is through faith in Christ and not our works. You know what it was? It was a real load off his mind. Because, friends, if you're going to work your way to heaven, it's going to take a lot of work. But you can't do it. But Jesus Christ has come to save us. Now let's talk about Rome itself a little bit, and then the Roman church, and then I'll get to the the bulk of the message, okay? The Roman church that Paul writes to was, was, nobody knows how it got there. Nobody knows how it got there exactly. Uh, Christianity began in Jerusalem and Judea, and then it spread all across. And if you ever look at a map, you can see that Jerusalem is here, and Rome is way to the west, way across the Mediterranean Sea. But Christianity, it began in Jerusalem, and it spread. And it spread because of persecution. When the church of Jerusalem became very large, it became, it became, it became a target of, of, the Jew, of the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, and also the Roman Empire. And they struck that church, and it broke into a thousand pieces, and people scattered all over the world. You can see that in Acts chapter number 8. Some of those people wound up in Rome. Rome was a a great city to go to. It was a cosmopolitan city, a city of power, of wealth. It was a a, a wonderful place to go to if you wanted to go to a place where stuff was happening, you know, kind of like some of our cities downstate. Now, in Paul's day, this church at Rome, in verse number 8, look what Paul says about this church in Romans 1.8. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported of all over the world. This church, they didn't know how it began exactly, but this church became famous. In an earlier edition of this sermon this week as I was writing it, I wrote down, Dear Lord, make Faith Baptist Church a church like that. A church that's famous all over the world because of our faith, because of our love, because of our obedience to Jesus Christ. You may say, well, how, how could it be? We're here in Sheboygan, Michigan. Nobody knows about Sheboygan. They're always getting us confused with Wisconsin. If you say to Siri, pizza places in Sheboygan, it takes me to Wisconsin. <laughs> but you know what? The, the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that thing with us. And that should be our ambition, to be a, a famous church for the glory of God. 
Now, this Roman church, it was known, well known in Paul's day, and it's still well known today. For 300 years, the church at Rome was a growing church, a church that grew in its power and influence because it was in Rome, because there were a lot of big brains there in that city. Those people became Christians, and some of them became the leaders of the church, and that church was filled with great minds. And for 300 years, the church at Rome dominates Christianity, dominates Christianity, had the greatest preachers, the greatest assistant preachers, just, a, just a, a beacon of the light, the beacon of light in that world. But it didn't stay that way because the church at Rome over time began to slide, slide away from the Lord, slide away from the truth to the point now that the church at Rome is not even a church of Jesus Christ at all anymore because they lost the gospel. They lost the gospel. Tom Nettles, a historian at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, I was talking, he was in Lawton, Oklahoma, he was preaching and teaching there, and I, I was talking with him, and I asked him about Catholicism, and he said, the church at Rome was a true Christian church, just like we are a true Christian church. But they slid away from the gospel, and they became a, they became a corrupted church. They became so corrupted that they don't even have the gospel anymore. Now, we live in an area where there's a lot of Roman Catholic people, and that's what the Roman church has become. It became, it descended into what it is today. And we, we have a lot of Roman Catholics in our area, and we overlap with the Roman Catholic church in many doctrines. I, a, a Catholic family visited my church in, uh, in Arkansas one time. They were from New Orleans, Louisiana, and they had been displaced because of Hurricane Katrina. And they were living in our town, and the lady, she came to visit our church, and it was during the Christmas season. And during the Christmas season, I was giving these Advent sermons, and I preached one Sunday on the virgin birth, and I was flinging it down with all my might, right? And after the service, she came up to me, and she said, Terry, I didn't even know that Baptists believe in the virgin birth. (laughs) I thought only we believed in it. And I said, no, we do. We believe in the virgin birth. We don't believe in the other spooky things they teach about Mary, but we do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Amen? It's a fundamental to Christian faith. So we have many overlapping doctrines with the Catholic Church, but we do not share the same gospel. We do not share the same gospel. This is an important thing to keep into your mind. We do not share the same gospel. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Just just to show you how this works, how a church can cease to have the gospel. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse number 6. I'm not preaching against Catholic people. I'm going to say this right now. I'm not preaching against Catholic people. I love Catholic people. I'm against the doctrines of the Catholic church in regards to salvation. Catholic people are not our enemies. We're not, our enemies are not flesh and blood. That's Ephesians. Our, enemies, our enemy is Satan and the powers of darkness in this false world. Not people. Not people. But listen to Romans chapter 1, verse number, this is Galatians 1, I'm sorry, verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting, deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently. Some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that, other than what you have accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul writes to the church at Galatia and he says to them, you are going into another gospel. You're going into a gospel that is not a gospel. You are departing from the faith. And Paul says, if you're going to do that, if you're going to believe and teach a false gospel, let you be under God's curse. The authorized version says, let them be damned. Strong words. The gospel is life and death. The gospel is life and death. If you do not believe the true gospel, you will not go to heaven. You must believe the true gospel. The one taught in the New Testament. And we see there in Galatians that this church, there's a good church They're sliding away from the gospel little by little. And Paul has to come and smack them on the nose and say, No, you cannot do that. You're going the wrong direction. And then Paul, at the end of that passage, Paul says, This is, he knows this is going to offend people. So he says, I'm not the servant of people. I'm the servant of God. Paul says this in Romans 2, Let God be true and every man a liar. Who is behind the perversions of Christian churches? Who is behind leading churches away from the truth? Who is behind leading churches from the glorious light of the gospel into the darkness of deception and deceit? Who's behind that? Satan. Sometimes we Christians, we forget Satan's a real person. (laughs) He's really out there. He's really out there. And his false demons, his fallen angels, they're out there too. They're all around us, and they hate us. Satan hates the Christian church. He hates the true gospel. He hates it with every fiber of his being, and he will not stop until God stops him in the last day and casts him into the bottomless pit. If you look there at Revelation chapter 12, the Bible talks about Satan being cast down from heaven, and the Bible says he knows he has but a short time. He only has a short time to work. Satan understands the, the brevity of life, and he only has a short time to work, and so he's working wildly. When I was a kid, my dad used to tell this story. He'd say, his dad would go to work in the mornings, and he would say to the boys, now boys, when I get home, when I, before I get home from work today, I want, all, I want the garden weeded and all the green beans picked. And my dad, and my grandpa would say, my dad would say, hear me? And dad would say, okay. And so dad said, you know, we what, he said, you know, Grandpa would go to work, and they would run around their neighborhood riding their bikes, playing baseball, playing basketball, doing all the things that kids do. And then, he said, one of us would realize, oh, no, what time is it? And they would realize the time and go, oh, man, we only got like 15 minutes before Dad's home. And they only had a short time. And he said, we would go home, and we would weed that garden, boom, and pick those beans, boom. And have it all done, be sitting on the patio, dripping sweat, you know, and Paul, I called him Paul, Paul would pull in and he'd say, good job. (laughs) Dad said, when we knew we had a short time to work, we really worked hard. And my friend Satan knows he only has a short time too, and he's working overtime. 
He never lets down. He never shuts off. He is working to destroy Christianity, and he wants to destroy, destroy this church. He wants to destroy you and your families. Satan is our enemy. He's our enemy. And we have to be on guard. We have to be ever vigilant against him. Now let's look at the sermon, okay? Verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to this earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing Paul talks about about in verse number one is Paul lets them know he is a servant. He is sent by Jesus. This word to be an apostle means you are a designated messenger. Paul tells them this is not something that is, is coming from my mind. It's not my ambition. This is something God has given to me. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has sent me with this message to you. I am under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. I am a servant sent by Jesus. Set apart for this special purpose. Set apart for the gospel of God. In verse number two, the apostle Paul, he starts to deal with this assertion that the gospel is an innovation because he says it's the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, the gospel, the method of salvation that we believe, the salvation that comes through faith alone, is not an innovation. It is not something new. It is something very old. And God has been talking about this all through the Old Testament. In Galatians 3.15, it starts off with a, with a promise that there would be a, a son who would be born to a woman who would bruise the serpent's He would crush the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise that person's heel, talking about Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6, the Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. In Genesis chapter number 22, the Bible says, you know where Abraham, you guys remember Abraham? Abraham had a son named Ishmael, and he offered Ishmael on the mountain, is that right? No, it's Isaac. (laughs) Abraham did have a son named Ishmael. It's a trick question. He did have a son named Ishmael. He also had a son named Isaac. And God told Abraham, I want you to go and kill your son Isaac on this mountain. And so for three days and three nights, they traveled to this mountain. And on the way to the mountain, Isaac says to his dad, he says, Dad, we got the fire, but where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. And the authorized version says it that way. God will provide himself a lamb. The NIV says God will provide for himself a lamb. But they both say the same thing. And the point is God will provide a lamb to pay for these sins. God will provide. And these, these, all these things are all pointing to Jesus in the New Testament. If you turn to Exodus chapter 12, verses 13, where he has that great story about the Passover, the death angel is going to come and kill all the firstborn, and only those who are under the blood will be spared. And the Bible says there they're supposed to put the blood on the, the top part of the door 
and the upright part of the door, the horizontal and the vertical. Now, if I, if, if, when I do that, what does it look like? It's like a cross. It's this way and this way. In the Bible, in, in, the, in, the, in the offerings of the Old Testament, they would do this thing called a wave offering. Or they would wave an offering. They would take it and they would kill it and wave it at heaven. And here, here's how it would go. They would make the offering. They would lift it up and wave it. <laughs> Can you see it? And then in the tabernacle, the way the furniture is, is arranged, then when you come in, there's a piece of furniture here, a piece of furniture here, and here, and here. As the priest would walk in, they would do the service of the temple. They would come into the front, they'd walk over here, they'd walk over here, they'd walk over here, and that floor of that temple was covered with gold. And what happens over time in a floor when you walk the same path all the time? It wears through. And so as these priests are walking into the temple, into the tabernacle, they're walking into a place where there's a cross worn into the floor. All through the scriptures are all these pictures of Jesus Christ. It's all through the scriptures. God has prophesied this. If you look at Exodus chapter 26, all the way through chapter 40, all, these, all the parts of the tabernacle, they're all pictures and shadows and types of Jesus Christ himself. And you say, well, that's just because, you know, preachers got to have something to talk about. Well, that's true. <laughs> but in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, the Bible says that Jesus met these disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he talks to them, and the Bible says, beginning at Moses, and through all the prophets, Jesus prophesies, he, he shows them that all those things are about him. That's why when you read the Old Testament, you can find type after type after type of Jesus. Once you know to look for them, they're there. Have you ever been to an airport or some place that has one of those pictures on the wall that's all those weird dots? And it says, what do you see here? You know, and you stand there and you stare at it, you know, and you're like, what is this? Just a funky looking picture. But you let, if you let your eyes get out of focus and something pops out of it, I remember the first time I saw one of those, some other people were looking at it, and they said, yeah, it's an airplane. And I'm just like... I don't see nothing. You know, they're all staring at it. And one guy said, yeah, it's an airplane. Just, he said, look, look, look for an airplane, you'll see it. And the minute he said, look for an airplane, guess what I saw? An airplane. Once I knew it was there, it was there. Once you know that the Old Testament talks about Jesus, you find it everywhere. You find it everywhere. Remember the, remember the guy Noah? What did Noah build? He built an ark. And what is, what is the ark a picture of? Jesus. Everybody who's inside of Jesus is saved, right? Everybody who's outside of Jesus is lost. It, it's all there. And then how many doors were on the ark? How many doors? Only one. Only one way into Jesus. And then who closed the door? Who shut down the whole opportunity for salvation to the world? Who shut the door? God shut the door. And that door is open until God shuts it. It's open even right now. All these things, all through the Old Testament, are all there talking about Jesus. And this is what Paul says. This is the gospel he has promised beforehand through the prophets in the Scriptures. It's not something, it's not an innovation. It's something, it's something old. It's the old way of salvation. In verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the Son of God. But then he also says that Jesus is a Jew. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Now, why is Paul bringing this up? Remember, people are saying that there is no place for Jews inside of Christianity. And here is Paul, right at the beginning, he's saying that your Savior is, guess what? 
a Jew, a Jewish Savior, the Son of David. Jesus is a Jew. Now, you say, well, how come Paul's not more explicit about this? Paul becomes way more explicit about it as the book unfolds. But here, he's chipping away at it right at the beginning. It's very important. Jesus is a Jew. We are all a part of the salvation provided by a Jew. Not just a Jew, but a Jew who is the Son of God. In the footnote of the NIV, it says here that Jesus, according to the flesh, in, in this, I, I don't, do you, how many, who has a 1984 NIV. Anybody have a 1984 NIV? I don't know. This is a 2011. I don't know what the 1984 says, but this one says, this is 2011, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was descendant of, of David. There's a footnote that says, who according to the flesh was a son of David. So I, I'm not quite sure why, they, why they've done that, but it's, it's worth thinking about it later. I wish I, in fact, I wish I hadn't said anything about it right now because <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of David. And then in verses 5 to 6, Paul says that this Jewish Savior Lord is the one who the Gentiles serve. So now the Gentiles are serving a Jewish master. Look at the reading. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. These Gentiles, they're told by Paul, you serve the Jewish Savior. Now I want you to notice something in verse number 5 because I think this is is pretty important to us as Christians in verse number 5. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. What does this mean? It means that faith produces obedience. True faith produces obedience. True faith. When you've really put your faith in Jesus, when you've really been born again, it produces obedience to Christ, obedience to the Lord. Remember a few weeks, it's been several weeks ago, I said that Jesus is Lord is not a slogan. When we say Jesus is our Lord, that means he's our master, he's our boss, he's our overseer. And that true faith, true faith is accompanied by obedience to Christ. James chapter 2, it says that faith without works is dead being alone. When you are truly born again, something big has taken place inside of you. It's like a bomb has gone off. Boom. And you're not the same as you were before. And I hate to use this illustration for the second or third time, but I've used it hundreds of times, and I'll keep on using it because it's a good one. When, when I was unmarried, I had a little apartment lived by myself, and I lived like a heathen, right? I had one washcloth and one towel. And to my knowledge, I don't remember washing either one of them. They dried out. Don't germs evaporate? I, I, had, I had a toothbrush. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a little toothbrush holder to put it in. I just threw it on the sink, right? I had, I had Dawn dish soap. That's what I washed my dishes with and my body. <laughs> I mean, I, just, I, I didn't have a broom. I didn't have a dustpan. I didn't have a trash can. 
I had a Walmart sack on a doorknob. That's how I lived until January 2nd, 1998, when Valerie Courtney came walking down the aisle, and we got married. We went away for a couple days on, a, on the briefest, cheapest honeymoon imaginable. <laughs> we got back to town on a Sunday. And, and, you know, people had given us all this money when we got married, which is kind of nice. Let's get married again. <laughs> people just open up their pocketbooks, you know. So we went back to that apartment. Now, her parents had purchased for us a bed and a dresser which had been delivered, and we had them there. But we didn't have any sheets, right? We didn't have all the linens. And then, so we got back to town. This on a, on a Sunday, Sunday morning. We, we didn't go to church on Sunday morning. We, we, <laughs> we ate at Waffle House. And the, and the reason why we ate there was Valerie wanted to have a place where she could eat and smoke. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just teasing. That girl's never, she's never touched a cigarette in her life. Although I've tried to get her to. <laughs> so, we, we uh, I gotta tell this dumb story. So we got back on Sunday, right? We go to the, we go back to our little apartment, and I'm thinking, hey, you know, we ain't got nothing, so we'll live on love, right? And so we walk into the apartment, and she's like, we gotta go to the store. And I was like, for what? She said, we gotta get some stuff. I was like, what are we gonna get? What do we need? You know, we got one washcloth, we got one towel. Now we got a bed. I didn't even have a bed before. Now we got a bed. I had a couch I slept on. And so we go to Walmart, and Michael, she bought stuff I didn't even, I couldn't even believe. She bought stuff to put in the bottom of the drawers. Contact paper, shelf paper. She bought this, she, she bought forks and, and spoons and knives and plates, a dish drainer. With that little slanted mat that goes under it so the water would go into the sink. I mean, she's buying all kinds of... She bought bath... She bought wash rags for the bathroom and different wash rags for the kitchen. A rag's a rag, right? I mean, she just is buying all this stuff. We had to buy a little... This is, this is back in the day. Those little fuzzy things on the back of the commode. The little thing that goes on the back of the commode. A little thing there, a little cover for the commode lid, you know, and a rug and a bath rug and a soap dish holder, a toothbrush holder. I mean, she went hog wild. Put stuff on the wall. Her sister came over and they put border along the walls of my apartment. Friends, my life has never been the same. We bought this house up here in, in uh, wherever we're at, Michigan. And I've been hanging stuff, lengthening chains. You know, she's like, Tara, what do you think? You think you could fix this? I know you can. She's just manipulating me, <laughs> getting everything she wants out of me. Now, the reason I tell you all that stuff is because that's what a girl did to my life. And when God the Holy Spirit comes into you, the third part of the Godhead, when he comes into you, really comes into you, you ain't going to be the same either. He rearranges the furniture in your house. You didn't care about being merciful or patient or kind or gracious. You didn't care about going to church, but when the Holy Spirit moves in, 
boom. He changes you. And that's what Paul means here, the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith. The new birth is a big deal. You're not the same. Now, I grew up in a Christian home. And when I became a Christian, my behaviors didn't change very much because I was already, you know, well-schooled well in Christianity. But when my parents became Christians, my dad was a, you know, Waylon Jennings, Merle Haggard, kind of redneck, heathen outlaw. But when he became a Christian, life changed. My mom was a, was a hippie flower child, you know, dope-smoking woman. I mean, when she became a Christian, boom, her life changes. When the Holy Spirit comes in, he changes you. This is the obedience of faith. This is something that we don't often think about. A person who's been born again is not the same as they were. You can read 1 John and see the marks of true faith. In verse number 7, I don't want you to miss these special words that the apostle uses. These special words. When he talks about the people. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. What kind of people are in Rome? Well, the Roman culture was a pagan, heathen culture. And Paul says God loves those people. In John 3.16, the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says in in Deuteronomy 4 and chapter 7 and chapter 10 that God loved Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says that God loved Solomon. And now here, in specific terms, God is saying that he loves Gentiles. That he loves Gentiles. He loves these people. He sent his son to die for them too. And he's called them to be his holy people. Now, this designation is not lost on me. His holy people. Holy people. This is a designation used in the Old Testament to describe Israel. But now God uses it on Gentiles. Why does he do this? Because the people of faith, that is the true, enduring, everlasting Israel of God. These are the children of faith. These are the sons of Abraham. Jesus teaches that in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 44. He says, this is the true sons of Abraham. If you were Abraham's children, you would love me. To the Pharisees, he says this. They say, hey, we're Abraham's kids. We are descended from Abraham by blood. We are ethnic Jews. We are the ethnic Israel. And Jesus says, the true sons of Abraham are those are the sons of faith. This is a theme throughout the New Testament. It's it's unmistakable. It's irrefutable. Paul is saying that the people of Christ, that the church is made up of believing people regardless of their ethnicity. And let's think about that for a second in a world that's being more and more polarized day after day by ethnic divisions. It is within Christianity where all the ethnic groups are brought together where there is one people made, one body, the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul lays it out very plainly. And God tells us that the new covenant people are those who've been made so by the Holy Spirit through faith in His Son. And Paul unfolds this as we go through Romans, but he hits it right off the bat. That way people know the people of God, those who are believers, they're loved by God and they're called to be his holy people. Now here's, here's, the, end, here's the end of the sermon. 
Practical stuff. First of all, Gentiles and Jews are made one in Christ. That's Romans chapter 5, verse number 6. In Christ, there's neither bond nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Scythian, or barbarian. We're made one people in Christ. One people in Christ. So these old ethnic distinctions, they disappear. We're in Christ. As one body, we care for each other. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, that we've been made into one body. And so like, like, right, like, let's talk about how we care about our own body. Let's ask this question. Do you like your body? <laughs> I guess that's the wrong question, isn't it? Because I don't like mine and you don't like yours. There's always things we don't like about ourselves. But we, in general, we care for ourselves. So this morning when I went outside and felt that the weather, that, that winter had arrived, I went back in the house and got a warm coat because <laughs> I care for my body. And when I get home today, I'm going to eat lunch because I care for my body. I'm going to take some ibuprofen because my foot hurts because I care for my body. I mean, I'm just all, all these things. I love myself. And when the Bible talks about us being made into a body, this church, this local fellowship right here, we're a body too. And we should care for one another. And Paul gives this warning in Galatians where he says, you have to be careful that you don't start to Bite and devour yourself. What do you call a person who bites their own body and chews on themselves? What do you call that person? Crazy. Nuts. They're out to lunch. Their elevator doesn't go all the way to the top floor. They're half a bubble off plum. They're a brick shy of a load. <laughs> They're crippled too high for crutches. They're wacko. And you know what Christians sometimes we do is we start chewing on ourselves, chewing on each other. We're one body. We all matter. We're all important. We should love and care for one another like that. We've been made one body in Christ. We should care for one another. Paul talks about that in chapter 12. And in Christ, all these old barriers are removed. We've been brought together to be one people, Galatians 3, 28 through 29. We are the people of God if we believe the gospel. Paul begins this book to the Romans by answering basic objections. He's going to launch more into all of them. And by the time Paul is done, he's going to show us chapter 16, which is a fascinating chapter with mentions of over 30 different people that Paul knows in, at the church at Rome who have been made part of this one glorious body, the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here. We pray that you bless this word to our hearts now. I pray that you would save sinners, Lord. If there are people here who are not Christians, Lord, I pray you would save them. Maybe, Lord, you'll save them right at this moment, that they would believe on Jesus and call upon him. And, Lord, maybe, maybe when they get home, they'll be sitting there in their chair, and you'll cause them to think about their own eternal state. And maybe, Lord, those of us who are Christians and we have the wrong focuses and we're not really living for you like we should, you'll deal with us too, Father. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' holy and glorious name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand together.